Welcome to Inviolable Voices, a podcast dedicated to exploring the mysteries behind our greatest literary works. Together, we'll discover the inner conflicts and adverse circumstances that help shape their authors. I'm your host, Nadia Padilla. In October 1301, a 36-year-old poet and politician named Dante Alighieri was sent by the council of his city, Florence, to beg the Pope for help. A power-hungry nobleman named Charles of Valois, younger son of a king of France, had styled himself ruler of Italy with the Pope's blessing and slowly but surely was making his way toward Florence intending to use any methods necessary to force it into submission. The Florentine government was hoping that Dante, who had, over the last five years, risen meteorically fast through the ranks of power in Florence, would be able to convince the Pope to call Charles off. Nothing turned out the way that Dante and his political party had hoped, though. Pope Boniface VIII was a shrewd opponent, and together with Charles of Valois, he decimated Florence. Within a few short months, it seemed that everything was over for Dante. During that time, he went from being an important man in a city he loved to a penniless wanderer forced to depend on the kindness of strangers. For the next 20 years, Dante would live in exile, cut off from friends and, for long periods of time, his family. As he would write, close to the end of his life, he learned, quote, how salt is the taste of another man's bread, and how hard is the way going down and then up another man's stairs. Dante survived this terrible ordeal mainly because of his writing. His first few years were precarious, but eventually noblemen in various parts of Italy opened their homes to him and supported him because they were eager to help the increasingly renowned author. When Dante was exiled, he had written very little. A few lyric poems and one memoir were all he could lay claim to. But exile changed him as it would change us all. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say that it forced him toward self-realization. It sharpened his tendency toward individualism, producing the fiercely idiosyncratic temper that fueled all of his later works, his tracts arguing for the importance of vernacular poetry and the necessity of empire for Italy, and of course, the Divine Comedy. This last work, which is generally known as the Divine Comedy in English, even though Dante only ever referred to it as the comedy, is one of the greatest works of literature ever, a trip through hell, purgatory, and heaven that manages to sum up all of humanity in one of the most visually stunning narratives ever. Everyone realized how incredible the work was almost instantly, Dante became widely acknowledged as the greatest poet in Italy before he had even finished writing the comedy, something that made it much easier for him to find patrons. 
The comedy was written through these years of terrifying instability and dependence on the wealthy that he often found irritating. But the poem drew much of its power from all of the anger and contempt the years had bred in Dante and from the hope he had to cling to in order to keep moving forward. Join me today to hear all about the creation of the comedy. Dante Alighieri was born into one of the most important cities in Europe. By the time he became a teenager in the late 1270s, Florence had a population second only to Paris among European cities. The 13th century was a time of expansion and prosperity for the city. A new set of walls were built between the years 1284 and 1333 to encompass the rapidly growing population. And Florence had such a thriving economy that their gold coins, called Florins, which were first minted in 1252, became within a few short years the standard monetary measure of Europe. Dante wasn't as happy about all of these developments as others were. He yearned for the Florence of the century before, when it had been, as he puts it in the final installment of the comedy, quote, abiding in peace, sober and chaste, not bustling with commercial ventures he couldn't always approve of. But there's little doubt that he was intensely proud of his city, to the extent that his identity was always wrapped up with that of Florence. This thriving city had a pretty serious problem, though. Its aristocrats just couldn't seem to get along. This was even more of a serious problem in Florence than in other cities because since the year 1115, it had basically been a republic ruled by these aristocrats. In the year 1200, they had decided that their councils should be ruled by a leader from other cities in the hopes of minimizing the intensely partisan nature of Florentine politics. It didn't help that Dante was born into what was probably the biggest crisis of the medieval papacy, something that also affected the conflicts in Florence. During the 13th century, a series of popes attempted to expand the authority of the papacy securely into the temporal realm. This was an ongoing issue throughout the Middle Ages, of course, but it reached something of a crisis point during Dante's lifetime. During the decades before Dante was born, Pope Gregory IX repeatedly butted heads with the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, because the Pope essentially wanted to control the empire and Frederick felt that it wasn't something the Pope should involve himself with. Two factions, originally warring German aristocratic families, joined this conflict. There were the Guelphs, who supported the Pope's ambitions, and the Ghibellines, who supported the emperors. These parties spread throughout the Holy Roman Empire, which at this point consisted of Germany and Italy, and it wasn't long before Florence was torn apart by the conflict, with ruling families taking sides and relishing in the opportunity to bash each other. During the decades before Dante's birth in 1265, the city changed hands multiple times. 
and each time one party won over the other in battle, its members returned to the city and destroyed the homes and buildings of their rivals. The year after Dante was born, though, the Florentine Guelphs won a decisive victory over the Florentine Ghibellines. And after the major Ghibellines had been exiled, Florence became the leading Guelph city in the region. This was lucky for Dante because he had just been born at the end of May 1265 into a staunchly Guelph family. The city was able to enjoy a few decades of relative peace, and Dante was able to benefit from it. Although Dante's mother, Bella della Abati, came from a very wealthy family, the Alighieri's belonged to the nobility, but didn't have titles or a huge amount of money. Dante and his younger sister lost their mother when Dante was seven, and his father promptly remarried, so that Dante ended up with an extended family that included two half-sisters and a half-brother. Dante's father died when Dante was in his late teens, which thrust Dante early on into the role of head of household at a fairly young age. It's impossible to know how he felt about losing both parents at a young age because he never wrote about it. Most of Dante's writings focus on his feelings for one person, a woman about his own age named Beatrice Portinari. He claims in a memoir he wrote in his late 20s titled New Life that he saw Beatrice for the first time when they were both nine. He says that, quote, she appeared dressed in the most patrician of colors, a subdued and decorous crimson, her robe bound round and adorned in a style suitable to her years. Beatrice quickly became Dante's overriding obsession. During his adolescence and teens, he sought her out as much as he could, in church, in the walkways of their neighborhood. He wrote that, quote, of her could certainly be said those words of the poet Homer, she seemed no child of mortal man, but of God. All he could really do was look at her, though. Marriage was never an option for them because, as aristocrats, they didn't have the right to choose their spouses. Dante's father arranged for him to marry a young woman named Gemma Donati, who was from a wealthy and powerful family and brought the Alighieri's twice the usual dowry. Dante and Gemma were engaged when Dante was only 11 and Gemma 10. The two were married and began living together in 1285 or 86, when Dante was about 20, and had the first of four children shortly thereafter, but the marriage and fatherhood had very little impact on Dante's inner life. He would never write about his wife or his children. The vast majority of the short lyric poems that Dante wrote in his late teens and twenties, poems that earned him his first taste of literary fame, are about Beatrice. They chronicle every twist and turn of Dante's feelings for her and every fleeting interaction with her, and these seem mostly to have been limited to exchanges of greetings. He circulated these poems in the thriving literary world of Florence and they earned him the admiration of many, 
including some of the most admired poets and thinkers of the city. Eventually, Beatrice married, though, and all too soon, in the early 1290s, she died. Dante was devastated by the loss. He commemorated Beatrice and his feelings for her in the memoir New Life, written during the early 1290s. This work, an innovative blend of poetry and prose that compiles all of the poems he wrote for Beatrice during the 1280s and 90s, begins to hint at the utter strangeness of Dante's feelings for Beatrice. This is clearly not your average adolescent obsession, or even your average exalted love so common for poets to profess during this time period. Dante began to see the frequent recurrence of the number three and multiples of three in the significant dates of his obsession with her as a sign from God that Beatrice was cosmically important because three was the number of the Holy Trinity. Dante became convinced that it was only through Beatrice that he would be able to be saved, that Beatrice was uniquely important to God. In the comedy, which he began almost 20 years later, Dante is saved from eternal damnation by Beatrice, who, from the highest circle of heaven, sends the Roman poet Virgil to lead Dante through hell and purgatory. Beatrice herself takes Dante on his guided tour of heaven, where she acts as the supreme authority, after God, of course, of the poem. She corrects several of the most important saints who are securely situated in heaven, and we are clearly meant to take her beliefs as God's own truth. In New Life, Dante portrays the feelings he had for Beatrice when he was younger as fundamentally misguided because he hadn't fully grasped at that point that Beatrice was meant to guide him toward God and self-control and away from emotionality and venality. In 1295, the year Dante turned 30, this new sense of purpose seems to have led him toward civic duty. He had already served his city as a soldier six years earlier in a battle between Florence and Arezzo, a Ghibelline city. But now he joined various councils where his eloquence impressed and, in some cases, terrified his listeners. In June 1300, five short years after he began his career as a politician, Dante was elected to be one of the three priors who ruled the city, a post he held for the usual two months. There was no reason not to expect a bright, successful future in politics for Dante, but unfortunately, fighting as severe as that that had almost destroyed the city in the years before Dante was born began again in the 1290s. The feud that eventually led to Dante's exile began in his own neighborhood, which became known as the Neighborhood of Scandal. Initially, the fighting had nothing to do with politics. Supposedly, everything started because the Donatis, the family of Dante's wife, became jealous of the nouveau riche family, the Cherokees, who could afford to own bigger palaces than those of the Donatis, even though the Donatis were a much older family. This caught the attention of a man named Corso Donati, a murderous, clever man with a loud personality who began to slander the Cherokees calling the head of the family the donkey of La Porta. 
Things got a little more serious when some young Cherokee men died after eating a black pudding, which everyone believed had been poisoned by Corso Donati. Then, one of the most renowned Florentine poets, Guido Cavalcanti, who was also a good friend of Dante, began very publicly to support the Cherokee side in the feud. Corso Donati conspired to assassinate him. He was not successful, but Guido found out about their plans. When one day Guido was out hunting with a band of Cherokee men and came across Corso Donati, he threw his spear at him and thankfully missed. Then at the beginning of the new century, the fight became even more serious. At a May Day dance in the year 1300, a group of Donatis attacked the Cherokee partiers. A 16-year-old boy named Rigoberto de Cherokee had his nose cut clean off by a Donati assailant, and suddenly the feud became a full-scale war. A chronicler wrote, quote, that blow was the destruction of our city. This happened when Dante was prior of the city. He and the other two priors decided that they needed to take action. Two distinct parties had emerged again and divided the city. Both were Guelphs still, but now there were White Guelphs, a group that consisted of the Cherokees and their supporters, and Black Guelphs, a group made up of the Donatis and their allies. In spite of the fact that Dante was married to a Donati, he sided with the Whites. But he had recently been filled with the growing conviction that these conflicts were destroying his city and needed to stop. Along with his fellow priors, Dante exiled a number of ringleaders from both the white and black sides, including his friend, the poet Guido Cavalcanti. The decision to exile party members seems to have originated from Dante, something that couldn't have been easy for him to do, but that speaks to his devotion to his city's well-being. After he finished his two-month term as prior, he continued to place the well-being of the city over all other concerns in his political activity. And he seems always to have stayed remarkably true to his principles, taking unpopular positions at times if he felt like these positions would best benefit Florence. Ultimately, Dante's principled nature proved his downfall. Well, that and the new pope, Boniface VIII. Boniface was a shrewd politician, worldly and passionate, angering as easily as he was overcome by love for God. Boniface devoutly believed that the papal office should hold complete temporal power and did everything that he could to make that happen, something that led to serious problems with the French king and that, in 1305, caused the papal seat to be moved from Rome to Avignon for almost a century, the only time that ever happened. But in 1301, Boniface was in a war over a cluster of properties he believed fervently should be his, and he wanted Florence to help him fight to get them. Boniface had arranged a marriage for his great-nephew with an heiress to the Aldobrandeschi fortune. He was eventually forced to divorce the couple because the heiress's sexual promiscuity made her an unsuitable match for his great-nephew. But 
Boniface wanted to hold on to the heiress's vast inheritance, something her family was obviously not happy to allow him to do. He promptly waged war against the family and expected Florence to help him by sending 200 armed horsemen to fight for him. Dante had, up until this point, been in the new pope's good graces. He had been part of two missions to Rome in 1300, around the time that he was a prior, something that he likely would not have done had the pope disliked him. But this latest request was not something Dante could stomach. During the first discussion of this issue in the city council, the records tell us that two members of the council were for assisting the pope, one thought the issue should be postponed, and, quote, about the papal matter, Dante Alighieri advised that nothing be done. He was the only one who stood up against it at this meeting. When later the matter was put to a vote, Dante still voted against helping the Pope, but as part of a dissenting minority. The Pope got what he wanted. But for a while now, the Pope really hadn't been happy with Florence. Several issues cropped up that had made relations tense between him and the city that was such an important part of the economic well-being of the papacy and Europe. The new tensions in the city didn't make him happy either because they fostered instability. Multiple times he attempted to settle the matter himself, but with no success. Finally, at the beginning of 1301, Pope Boniface had an idea. He would set up a proxy ruler in Italy to bring Florence to heel and settle all of the other problems he'd been having in the region, all with one swift stroke. So, he invited Charles of Valois, younger brother of the King of France, to become the ruler of Italy, with his blessing. Charles had always felt entirely deserving of a kingdom and a little gypped that he hadn't inherited one, so he was more than happy to oblige. In May 1301, he headed for Italy. Just the month before, there had been a coup in Florence. The Whites, Dante's party, had discovered that the Blacks had met in a church and conspired to throw out the Whites. So the Whites had tossed them out. In September 1301, they heard that the exiled Corso Donati met with Charles and offered him 70,000 florins to help him and the exiled Blacks win the city back. The Whites braced themselves for trouble. As soon as they had gathered that there might be trouble, either from Charles, the Blacks, or both, they had begun to build roadworks to protect them from siege. Dante had been assigned the job of overseeing the roadworks, something that shows how trusted he was by his city. It's not surprising then that by late September, when the Whites were feeling desperate, Dante should have been chosen to be part of a three-man envoy to the Pope to beg him to keep Charles of Valois from attacking the city. Dante had just voted against any form of compromise with the French invader, so this must have seemed the most viable option to him. But leaving his city during a time of crisis was not easy. Giovanni Boccaccio, his first biographer, writes that when Dante was chosen to leave, he cried, quote, If I go, who stays? If I stay, who goes? The Cherokees and their white counterparts had demonstrated time and again an inability to stand their ground, to make difficult decisions well, and Dante was anxious now about leaving. As things turned out, he had every reason to worry. When Dante appeared before the Pope, the Pope singled him out for special treatment. 
He sent the other two envoys back almost instantly, but requested that Dante stay behind and wait for his answer. This meant that, as the Pope had wished, Dante wasn't in Florence when Charles of Valois arrived with 2,000 armed soldiers and black Guelph allies on November 1st. The white Guelph leaders were constitutionally incapable of refusing the commands of a member of the French royal house, so when Charles requested that they allow him and his army to enter, they approved his request. They made him promise to keep the peace, which Charles agreed to and then immediately disregarded. Corso Donati made his way back into the city and told the priors to take a long vacation. He then opened the prisons and, with the help of his black supporters, wreaked havoc in the city, looting the homes of all of the most prominent Guelphs. Dante's home was one of the homes that they looted. New priors were elected a week later, and this time they were all blacks. Dante hurried back when he heard what happened, but while in Siena in February 1302, he heard that he had been charged with trafficking in offices, accepting bribes, and a whole host of other crimes, none of which, of course, he had committed. They requested that he come answer these charges in person. Dante knew that if he were to return now to his beloved Florence, he'd never make it out again alive. Sure enough, in March 1302 came the decree. For failing to answer to his crimes, Dante was now condemned to be burned to death. Fourteen other former white Guelph priors shared the same fate. Dante lived for another 20 years, but he never saw his city again, even though he never gave up the hope that someday he might return. We're not sure how he lived for those first wretched years of exile, but he does seem to have thrown in his lot with the other exiled whites as early as June of 1302. He joined an alliance that had been formed between the Whites and the Ubaldini family of San Gadenzo, a village about 30 miles northeast of Florence. Two months later, the Florentine Blacks sent a ramshackle army to attack this coalition, which the Whites and their allies defeated fairly easily. This might have raised Dante's hopes, but by the beginning of the next year, Dante had abandoned the coalition, which never managed to achieve anything. He wandered around for a while, but at the end of 1303 seems to have believed again that perhaps now he and the Whites would be able to regain their city. The time seemed right. Pope Boniface VIII had gotten into trouble with the King of France, Philip IV, the older brother of Charles of Valois. Boniface had excommunicated the king after they had quarreled over taxation, and Philip, infuriated, had attacked the papal palace. His soldiers had seized Boniface and looted the residence, an action that managed to offend nearly everyone, even Dante, who despised Boniface but had nothing but respect for the papal office he inhabited. A month later, Boniface died and was replaced by the much gentler Benedict XI, who was invested in reconciling the two estranged Florentine parties. Nothing came of Benedict's efforts, though. The Blacks wanted nothing to do with their exiled fellow Florentines, and in 1304, Benedict died. After two years of hoping and waiting, Dante was fed up with a party that had gotten him into this mess in the first place. 
he broke decisively with the whites, giving up his only means of financial support rather than be allied with a group of people he had come to believe were, quote, wicked and stupid and, quote, completely ungrateful, mad, and impious. He now made, in the words he would put into the mouth of one of the people Dante comes across in heaven in the Divine Comedy, a party for himself, or a party of one. He wandered around for the next few years through various parts of Italy. How he supported himself, we're not sure, but he did manage to do a little writing, writing that shows how much Dante's individualism had been strengthened by the events of the new century. Around 1305, during a prolonged stay in Bologna, he composed a prose treatise proclaiming the artistic validity of poetry in the vernacular, a pretty ballsy move when most of the well-respected works of literature were still being written in Latin. And when, around 1309, there existed the possibility that a courageous, morally upright man would inherit the Holy Roman Empire, Dante wrote a treatise on monarchy that argued that the best way to bring stability to Europe would be through an emperor that, through his virtue and strength, would rule fairly and bring peace to a continent that must have seemed, during these chaotic years, completely out of control to Dante. Dante got more excited about Henry of Luxembourg than he had about anyone or anything for years. He wrote an impassioned letter in 1310 that survives with such exhortations as, quote, O oh, Italy, henceforth rejoice! Your bridegroom, the solace of the world, and the glory of your people, the most clement Henry, who is Augustus and Caesar, is hastening to the bridal. Dante really wanted Henry to get into Florence immediately and bring it back to sanity, but the Black Alps refused even to talk to him, and the monarch, for some reason, hesitated. Dante, who was not dealing well with the delay, wrote two impatient letters in 1311, one to Florence and one to Henry. He did not mince his words in the letter to Florence. He insisted on addressing them as, quote, iniquitous Florentines, and accused them of breaking God's laws and humanity's laws. He insisted that they open the doors of the city to Henry and stop being idiots, because Henry was out to fight for the greater good, not his own. To Henry, whom he addressed as, quote, sacred and triumphant, he wrote, urging him, quote, to slay this Goliath, meaning, of course, Florence, and Israel shall be delivered. Nothing came of the letters. A little over two years later, Henry would be dead of malarial fever, and Dante's last hope for European peace went with him. Even though the letters had absolutely no effect, they do help paint a picture for us of a man who has proved elusive to all of his biographers, the letters betray Dante's strength of character, but also the severity and conviction of a man who knew that what he believed was truth, beyond a shadow of a doubt. In the comedy, he admits several times that he suffers from the sin of pride, something these letters seem to suggest quite strongly. This pride is one of the most important aspects of the greatness of the Divine Comedy, though. The stark clarity of his worldview imbues this work with breathtaking force. The work is so outrageous that it's a miracle it works at all, really. 
In this work, Dante depicts himself as, at the age of 35, which was middle age for medieval people, having reached a midlife crisis, from which he is saved by Beatrice, the woman he loved, who has of course now been revealed to him as one of the surest manifestations of the divine will. She sends him a guide to take him to heaven, where she will meet him and take over the tour. And the guide just so happens to be the man whom Dante and his contemporaries considered the greatest poet ever. Virgil, the Roman author of that marvelous epic poem, the Aeneid. The poem hints at various points that Dante is a worthy heir to Homer, Virgil, and all of the other greats, that Dante will eventually be saved and end up in heaven, and that Dante is the new Icarus, the new Ulysses, and the new and improved Adam. The poem is so wildly self-aggrandizing that it should read like the fantasies of an overwrought schoolboy, but the sureness of his vision makes it all work better than almost anything ever written. There are so many unforgettable moments of visual splendor, angels shooting down like stars, snakes joining with people, spirits holding their own severed heads in their hands like lanterns. The whole work is filled with an overwhelming sense of the waste of so many people's lives who give in all too easily to terrible impulses and destroy their own lives and those of others. But it's also filled with a sense of hope. Maybe if people can develop self-control, as some, the people in paradise, have managed to do, we can create a better world. It's kind of amazing that Dante managed to imbue his work with this sense of hope, considering the circumstances. He probably began the first part of the comedy, The Inferno, while he was still wandering around, basically homeless, staying with wealthy noblemen only for short periods of time. Around 1312, ten years after Dante was exiled, he settled in Verona for five years, the longest he stayed anywhere after his exile. The new Lord of Verona, a 20-year-old named Can Grande della Scala, was a devotee of the arts, and Dante was quickly being recognized as one of the greatest minds of his generation. He gave Dante his own apartment, and the two settled into what must have been a very strange friendship. During these years, Dante was in his late 40s and early 50s. Accounts of him from these years describe him as a grave, sedate man, with a dark, bristling beard. One time, he was walking down the street in Verona and apparently frightened a group of women who felt that he looked like one of the suffering sinners in his own inferno. Con Grande, by contrast, was handsome, clever, and high-spirited, and very young. They seemed to have been tied mainly by their interest in the arts and in politics. In Con Grande's home, Dante was able to gain some measure of stability, though. His three sons joined him there, and he made a lot of headway on the comedy. He seems to have finished Inferno by 1315 at the latest, because people had already begun talking about it by this point. And to have finished Purgatorio, the second section, and begun the third section, Paradiso, by 1319. Also during these years, the unthinkable happened. Florence invited him to return. In 1315, Dante was advised that he would be allowed back into his city if he was to pay a fine and appear as a penitent, 
humbled and contrite, with bare feet and a rope around his neck, in one of the churches in Florence. Dante promptly wrote back that these terms were, quote, ridiculous and ill-advised, that he refused to abase himself and, quote, to allow himself to be presented at the altar as a prisoner. He was innocent and deserved no such treatment. Is this the glorious recall whereby Dante Alighieri is summoned back to the fatherland after suffering 15 years of exile? He asked indignantly. In spite of his growing fame, Dante was never invited back to Florence again. It's not surprising that with such a strong sense of self-worth that none of the money generally needed to back a strong sense of self-worth up, Dante's situation in Verona eventually became untenable. Con Grande was often insensitive to the awkwardness of Dante's position in his palace. Dante had been one of the most important men in his own city, both as a leader and as a literary figure. Now he was reduced to servility and to taking charity, something that must have grated on our poet. A few anecdotes from this time survive. It's not clear whether they're all true or not, but they do suggest the nature of the relationship between the two men. One night, Con Grande supposedly invited a jester to perform for him and his guests. When everyone loved the jester's dirty jokes, Con Grande turned to Dante and asked him, quote, I wonder why this stupid fellow knows how to please everyone when you, who are meant to be so wise, can't please them at all. Dante supposedly responded dryly, quote, You wouldn't wonder if you knew that friendship is founded on similarity of habits and disposition. Dante left Verona in 1317. He honored Con Grande in the final section of the comedy, but clearly they needed to be distant friends. According to his first biographer, Dante wandered for a while in pretty dire circumstances until another wealthy nobleman, the Lord of Ravenna, named Guido Novella da Polenta, offered to take him in. Dante lived out the last few years of his life here in much more comfortable circumstances than in Verona. Guido was closer to his own age and was also a poet. Dante's wife and daughter finally joined him in Ravenna after over 15 years away from him. His daughter entered a convent there and named herself Sister Beatrice, clearly in deference to her father, although what her mother thought about this we can only guess. Dante finished the comedy here and was beginning to gain some of his old prestige back. He gave a lecture on whether water can be anywhere higher than land on earth and he went on a diplomatic mission to Venice for Guido. But on his way back from this mission, he contracted malaria. On September 14, 1321, he died at the age of 56. Dante's mortal remains, ironically, had almost as much of a peripatetic existence as Dante had. He was buried in Ravenna, but beginning in the early 15th century, Florence wanted the remains of their most famous son returned to them. By the 16th century, Michelangelo had big plans for a tomb for him, so in 1519, emissaries were sent to seize the remains, by force if necessary. But when they opened the tomb, they found it was empty. The friars of the church had feared that exactly this would happen and had hidden the body. 
Once the Florentines left, the friars quietly returned the remains, ironically ensuring that Dante really never made it back to Florence. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Inviolable Voices. Just a quick note, we're going to be switching to posting every other Wednesday. My day job is keeping me kind of busy right now, and I don't want to sacrifice quality for quantity. So I think it would be better for everyone if we just have bi-weekly episodes. Special thanks to Chris Hawley and Eddie Miramontes for the music for this episode. Next time, we'll have an episode on the Mexican master, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. If you like the show, um, you can rate and review us on iTunes. It would really help increase visibility for the show. You can also follow us on Instagram under Inviolable Voices Podcast or tweet at us at Inviolable Pod. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Nadia Padilla. For more information on this episode, including the sources I used for my research, please visit my website at inviolablevoices.com. That's I-N-V-I-O-L-A-B-L-E-V-O-I-C-E-S dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell as many people as you can about us. You might also consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks so much and tune in next week for another episode of Inviolable Voices. Mm-hmm.